Welcome to episode 183 of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast for July 26th, 2011. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. On this week's episode of the Fredcast, a road rage is caught on a camera and the attacker is arrested. L.A. passes a cyclist anti-harassment law and faces Carmageddon. Plus, product recalls and a cyclist has a collision with a bear. Plus, pro cycling news, including the Tour de France, the new World Tour rankings, upcoming races, and unfortunately, doping news. Plus, following the news, my experience with road rage and my experience in Italy at the Maritona. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike hammer, just little bit harder because here comes the Fredcast. Hey fellow Freds, welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast. Great to be back with you. Back from Italy, back from my, well my sleep deprivation from the Tour de France as I'm sure many of you are as well and ready to get back into another episode of the Fredcast cycling podcast and this episode of the fredcast is brought to you by our friends at jensen usa go to jensenusa.com slash the fredcast now right now jensen usa is having a special on lots and lots of products from camelback now if you've listened to any of my recent shows from press camp or any of my shows over the last few years from Interbike or Outdoor Retailer, you know that I always stop by the Camelback booth. And quite frankly, that's because I've been a believer in Camelback's products since pretty much day one when they were first introduced back in the very early 1990s. I've got a Camelback insulated bottle sitting here on my desk as I prepare and do the Fredcast. When I go out on a long mountain bike ride, I'm carrying a Camelback on my back. And if I'm on a road ride, I've told you before, I'm using a Camelback podium bottle, usually filled with Camelback's uh, electrolyte drink, their Elixir electrolyte drink. And lately I've been sort of really enjoying their berry electrolyte drink. And the great thing is you can get all of Camelback's products at JensenUSA.com. And right now they've got some great deals going with many products up to 55, 56% off their regular manufacturer's suggested retail price. If you'd like to take advantage of this or any of the huge selection at Jensen USA where I've told you you're going to get great selection, great pricing, and some of the best customer service around, simply go to JensenUSA.com slash thefredcast or just go to thefredcast.com and click the Jensen USA banner on the right-hand side of the page. From the bottom of my heart, I thank JensenUSA.com for their sponsorship of the Fredcast, and I thank you for your support of Jensen USA. The first story tonight is one that began on May the 15th, but one which recently concluded with a result that I think you'll be happy about. Now, this story concerns uh, Simon Page, who was one of seven cyclists who were doing a road ride uh, to benefit a charity from Dover to London back on May the 15th. And as they were going through Bexley Village, well, I'll let Simon tell it in his own words. He said, quote, We were coming through a southeast London suburb when a car tried to overtake whilst we were going past a traffic island, which significantly narrowed the road. We remonstrated the driver, shouting, 
The car stopped, and the driver and passenger got out and started using very threatening language, and their body language was highly aggressive. They saw me reading the number plate and said, we see you have our number, now we're effing going to run you over. When they drove off, they clipped my right hand with a wing mirror. They stopped again, but this time the driver came over and punched me to the ground. Now, this is where one of the other cyclists' helmet cam videos came into play. Because the helmet cam video clearly showed not only the faces of the men as they came over and struck 49-year-old lawyer Simon Page, causing him to fall to the ground, not only were their faces clear, but so was the make and model of their silver Peugeot car. But perhaps more importantly, so was the number plate, the license plate on the car, allowing the cyclist who kept their cool to not chase after the drivers, but to turn the video over to police, report the incident, and hope that the police would be able to find the driver of the vehicle. At first, that seemed like it was going to be a difficult task because when they contacted the registered owner of the vehicle, they were told that the registered owner was not driving the vehicle at the time. However, because of the amount of publicity that this video generated and the amount of news coverage, finally, after a time, the individual who struck Mr. Page did come forward and turn himself in to police. The individual who turned himself in was John Nichols, 29 years old, of Wilmington. And now we have a resolution in the case as Mr. Nichols appeared in Bexley Magistrate's Court on Monday and was fined 400 pounds and ordered to pay a 100-pound compensation to the victim. Now, Detective Superintendent Darren Williams said of the case, quote, this incident, although rare, shocked both public and police when we saw the footage. I would like to praise the victim and the other cyclists for coming forward to police and my officers for taking quick and decisive action to identify and arrest the subject. Police at Bexley will deal robustly, I like that word, robustly with every crime involving violence, and I hope the result shows this view is echoed by the courts. I would also like to take the opportunity to remind car drivers that cyclists often feel very vulnerable when a car comes too close to them. So kudos to the cyclists for keeping their cool. Kudos to them for having the helmet cam footage and being able to get it to police. Kudos to the courts and, of course, to Detective Superintendent Williams' officers for handling this in an expeditious manner and ensuring that in just two months' time, uh, there was a, a, an, an arrest and a fine and a result in, a ca in this case. And while, of course, uh, Mr. Page was not seriously injured, we've seen too often that cyclists, when they get involved in situations like this, can be seriously injured or worse. And even in those cases, sometimes justice isn't done. So nice to see that justice was done in this case. And again, if you want to watch the video, it is quite shocking. Uh, go ahead and check it out in the show notes. I've got a, a link for you where you can view uh, the video on YouTube. Just as the police superintendent in Bexley Village mentioned about taking violence against cyclists very seriously, so is the city of Los Angeles. Now, many of you know, if you've been listening for any length of time, that Los Angeles is my hometown. I've only been here in Park City, Utah for four years. And when I started the Fredcast, I probably told you story after story of 
going out and riding in the city of Los Angeles and the environs of L.A. County and coming home and having my wife and kids ask me, how many people tried to kill you today? Because the streets of Los Angeles were at that time quite unfriendly to cyclists. Well, as you know, the mayor of the city of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, has recently become a cyclist and a cycling advocate, and so it seems has the Los Angeles City Council, because they recently passed, thanks to City Councilman Bill Rosendahl, recently passed a new uh, ordinance against cyclist harassment. And specifically, what you are not allowed to do, what is prohibited under the ordinance are things like physically assaulting or attempting to physically assault a bicyclist because of the bicyclist's status simply as a cyclist, or to threaten to physically injure a cyclist because of the cyclist status as a cyclist, to intentionally injure, attempt to injure, or threaten to physically injure a cyclist, to intentionally distract or attempt to distract a cyclist, or to intentionally force or attempt to force a cyclist off of a street for purposes unrelated to public safety. Now, those are things that many of us have encountered, whether in big cities, in small towns, and stick around to the features section of the show, and I'll tell you about one that happened to me in rural Utah just a couple of weeks ago. And what are the remedies that the city of LA says uh, fall underneath this ordinance? Well, any person who violates the provisions of the article is liable for treble or triple the actual damages or $1,000, whichever is greater. And the cyclist is empowered by this statute to engage the harasser in a civil lawsuit. Now, that doesn't mean that the city of LA or its uh, district attorney can't take the harasser to court for criminal proceedings, whether it was a, a misdemeanor act or a felony act, but it empowers the cyclist specifically under the law to have these rights against the harassment and prescribes what the remedies are. Another thing that the anti-harassment law does not do is it does not give you a free pass, carte blanche, if you are behaving, well, against what I always call being uh, a good cycling citizen. Look, if you're running red lights, if you are not obeying stop signs or the basic rules of the road, you are still liable for whatever traffic infractions uh, or the consequences thereof. However, I think that this is a great step in a positive direction for one of the largest cities in the United States, indeed in the world, to, to put a line in the sand and to say it is not okay with the city of Los Angeles for you to harass a cyclist simply because you don't like the fact that there are cyclists on the road, simply because they are on two wheels without a motor. Kudos to the city of LA, to the city council, to the mayor, and to Bill Rosendahl, who put this ordinance forward for passing this law. I hope that other cities in the United States and indeed across the world take this as an example. Cyclists deserve the protection, and it's nice to see that the city acknowledges that. 
Speaking of the city of Los Angeles, if you don't keep up with your Los Angeles news, you may not be familiar with an event that occurred on the weekend of July 15th, 16th, and 17th known as Carmageddon. Now, if you've ever been to Los Angeles, you may be familiar with the 405 freeway. That's the offshoot of the Interstate 5 that travels from the Mexican border all the way up to Canada. The 405 travels through the Sepulveda Pass and is known by many Angelinos as, well, as a freeway to avoid because it simply is gridlock many hours out of most days. Well, the city of Los Angeles and Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation, are working on a project to widen the 405 and provide uh, more lanes, including more HOV lanes. And in doing so, uh, they were required to demolish a bridge over the Sepulveda Pass portion of the 405, uh, the bridge connecting Mulholland Drive uh, on one side of the freeway to Mulholland Drive on the other side of the freeway. And that necessitated, after this long introduction, the closure of the 405, this major artery in the Los Angeles area, bringing about what became known as Carmageddon. How would Angelinos deal with being able to get from the valley to the beach or from Westwood to Van Nuys if they couldn't use their prized 405 freeway, hence the name Carmageddon? Well, several different groups decided to use Carmageddon as a way to get a bit of publicity, one of those being JetBlue Airlines, who decided to offer $4 one-way flights from Burbank Airport to Long Beach Airport or from Long Beach Airport to Burbank Airport. One of those flights, flight number 405, I'm not making this up, was slated to leave in the morning on Saturday, July 16th and head down to uh, from Burbank to Long Beach Airport. And a local cycling team, the Wolfpack Hustle, decided that they would in turn, perhaps goaded by uh, uh, author Tom Vanderbilt, who wrote the book Traffic, we've talked about that on The Spokesman and perhaps here on the Fredcast before, goaded into racing the plane from Burbank Airport to Long Beach Airport and race it they did. What they did was they decided to have cyclists leave from an intersection and have a an airline passenger do the same with the cyclists leaving about the time the airline passenger would leave to go to the airport uh, in order to get through security. And then the cyclists would head down toward Long Beach Airport. The race began uh, just before 11 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. The cyclists left the Cahuenga Chandler Boulevard intersection in North Hollywood and headed down to a lighthouse at the Pacific Ocean in Long Beach. The cyclists traveling on surface streets and one of the rules was that they would only follow traffic laws, not breaking any laws, running any lights or running any stop signs. And their distance was about 38 or 39 miles. They ended up completing the cyclists, their journey to Long Beach pretty much before the plane ever left the ground, the JetBlue flight encountering some delays at Burbank Airport uh, and completing their race in just over one hour and 30 minutes. Some criticized the entire event as a publicity stunt for both 
Wolfpack Hustle, and of course, JetBlue Airways. Others criticized the event because they felt that the cyclists should have left from the airport instead of from the Chandler and Cahuenga intersection, that they should have left as the traveler entered the TSA line for security, uh, and that they should have met at Long Beach Airport. I don't think it really matters. It was a fun event and a way to say, look, you do have transportation alternatives in the city of Los Angeles. And uh, just because you can't use your car, once again, to get from the valley to the beach over the 405 doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to get there. Uh, plenty of us uh, in Southern California have ridden the Sepulveda Pass on our bikes uh, and had absolutely no problem doing so getting a great workout, and certainly seeing some neat scenery along the way as well. So kind of a fun event, a great way to take advantage of what should have been a transportation nightmare in the city of Los Angeles. Parenthetically, some radio stations decided to completely preempt their regular coverage, doing wall-to-wall Carmageddon coverage. Turned out Carmageddon pretty much was a non-event, much like the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, when many of us agreed, many of us who stayed in Los Angeles, agreed that it was one of the best times for traffic, uh, or the lack thereof, in the city of Los Angeles. Sounds pretty much like that's the way Carmageddon was as well. So congratulations to the Wolfpack Hustle, not only for beating the plane, but also for proving that bikes are a viable transportation alternative, even when a major highway is closed, and perhaps even best when a major highway is closed. Well, many of you may have been surprised when you received a certain magazine in the mail and said, what the heck is this? The simple fact of the matter is Velo News has decided to drop the news. Now, what I don't mean by that is that they're no longer going to report the news. It's simply that the print edition of the magazine formerly known as Velo News is dropping the news from its name, simply going by the moniker of Velo. Meanwhile, the online website of the competitor group, the owner of Velo News, will continue to be called VeloNews.com. The magazine came out earlier this month with a redesigned cover for the August issue that went on sale on July the 19th featuring none other than Green Jersey winner at the 2011 Tour de France, Mark Cavendish. Now, what's curious about this is that I recall that there is a magazine in France by the same name of Velo, meaning, of course, bicycle. So I'm wondering whether or not uh, Velo News has purchased the trademark or whether or not they're well, whether or not they may have a problem with the publication in France. Still, according to Booker Poll, the senior VP of marketing at the competitor group, quote, without a doubt, Velo magazine is the best bicycling magazine in the world. And this new direction will separate our outstanding print product from our online news outlet at velonews.com. Readers won't find our Velo Lab bike testing, our insider analysis, and our engaging storytelling anywhere else but in the pages of Velo. So you can continue to go to velonews.com for your day-to-day -day news from the world of professional cycling and other aspects of the sport that we all love. But what you're going to get on your newsstands and in your mailbox is no longer going to contain the name news. So just look for your issue of Velo. Well, it's time for that section of the news, which I 
you know, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with. I hate to tell you about product recalls, but on the other hand, I'm happy to do so because as I learned in an online posting recently, sometimes the Fredcast is the only place where a lot of consumers end up hearing about these product recalls. So this is a public service that I'm happy to provide for you. So I've got three product recalls for you. The first are some Bell helmets, the second some Yakima racks, and then finally a Sivier rack. So let's start with the Bell helmet. First of all, we're talking about 31,000 uh, in the United States and 2,500 in Canada. The model being recalled is the full face Bell Exodus helmet. The problem here is that the plastic buckle that connects the chin strap can fail, uh, causing the helmet to possibly come off the wearer's head and therefore posing an injury hazard to you. This recall involves Bell Exodus full face helmets with a plastic buckle on the chin strap. The helmets have an angled visor and were sold in youth size in orange, gray, and black colors or in blue, gray, gold, white, black colors. Now these were sold through Walmart and through Amazon.com through August 2009 and March 2011 for between $50 and $60. I do have information in the show notes from both the Consumer Product Safety Commission and Bell Sports on where you can get a replacement or a refund if you have one of these helmets. The next recall is for a Yakima hitch mount rack called the flip side. The flip side is a bicycle carrier that goes on the back of a vehicle that uh, when you pull a pin uh, flips to the side to allow you to have easy access to the vehicle. And these were of course sold as aftermarket equipment and are usually used to transport up to four bicycles. The problem here is that the pin that's used to release the flip side to allow it to flip to the side can, at least according to the recall, quote, walk out, unquote, of its position and thereby, thereby allow the unit to fall uh, when you don't expect it to. And that can certainly happen while you are driving. According to Yakima, only a small number of units that were shipped after April 2008 through June 2011 have malfunctioned. And again, in, in those instances, the flip side's upright mast has folded to the side while the vehicle is in motion. Now, all flip sides that were produced since 2008 that have a red pull pin knob are affected by this recall. So if you have one like that, stop using it. Uh, give a call to Yakima at 888 925-4621 because they can send you a user installed upgrade kit at no charge. It takes about 15 minutes to install, replaces the current retention pin with a longer one, and according to them, solves the problem. So if you've got a Yakima flip side rack, give them a call. Check out the show notes for more information. And finally, Civia Bicycles, through its distributor Quality Bicycle Products of Bloomington, Minnesota, is recalling about 100 carrier racks that mount over the front wheel on a Civia bike. The, the problem here with these is that the rack's mounting bracket can crack or break, and when that happens, the rack could fall onto the front wheel, posing a potential hazard to the rider. Now, According to the recall, they've received one report of a rack mounting bracket breaking while the rider was on the bike, resulting in some minor cuts. Uh, now, this recall 
is specifically for the Civia Loring bicycle rack. Uh, these can be identified with a black aluminum tubing with bamboo panels that mount to the bicycle's front fork, and the word Civia is printed on the rack's side panels. These were typically sold through just regular IBDs, independent bike dealers nationwide, through December 2009 pardon me, from December 2009 through February 2011 for about $175. Of course, if you have one of these, remove it from your bike right away. Contact the store where you bought it for a full refund or replacement. And once again, uh, notices from both the CPSC and from Civia are linked in today's show notes. Listen up, fellow Freds and Quebecois cyclists. You need to know that starting August 1st, if you are caught wearing headphones as you ride your bike in the province of Quebec in Canada, you will be subject to a $52 ticket. According to Constable Nat Natalie Valois, a road safety specialist in Quebec, cyclists who wear earphones are often putting themselves in a potentially life-threatening situation, and now this will be an illegal distraction. She said, they don't hear us. They don't see us. And hearing is like the rear view mirror for cyclists. You need to hear what's going on around you and other cyclists near you may be trying to communicate with you. Last year in Montreal, there were 741 collisions between cars and cyclists with four cyclists dying as a result and 26 were seriously injured with 711 suffering minor injuries. And apparently, the biggest single cause for the collisions, and this probably won't surprise you, in 31% of those incidents was the distraction of either the cyclist or the driver or both. So from now on, I mean, look, I've told you before, I occasionally enjoy wearing headphones or earphones when I ride my bike. In, in most situations, you can get away with just having one in your ear, allowing your other ear free to uh, allow you to hear things around you. But if you are in the province of Quebec, starting August 1, the police do plan to get tough and they will not hesitate to give you a ticket for $52. One of the most famous multi-day bicycle events in the United States is the annual Seattle to Portland Bicycle Classic. This can either be a one or two day, 200 mile ride as over 10,000 riders go from Seattle, Washington to Portland, Oregon. Again, this year, about 10,000 riders. The oldest rider was 85. 18% of those who participated were first-time riders. The problem is that this year's Seattle to Portland bike tour was marred by someone placing thumbtacks on about four miles of US 30, causing punctures to bike riders' tires and injuring at least one person on the second day, Sunday of the Seattle to Portland event. Now the tax, um, and, and nobody knows where they came from, were on the highway between the cities of Scapoose and Northwest Cornelius Pass Road. Uh, one rider fell because of the tax and was knocked unconscious and thereby taken to a local hospital. According to MJ Kelly, communications director for the Cascade Bicycle Club, quote, we're disappointed that someone took it upon themselves to sabotage the people who were riding in the event. Couldn't agree with her anymore for what she had to say. It's unfortunate we've seen this in uh, 
several bicycle events over the last couple of years uh, here in the United States and in the UK. Hopefully this is not a trend that will continue. Over the past few days, the United States Postal Service has been previewing via Facebook and other social media outlets some of the designs for its 2012 postage stamps. Included among those is a forever stamp, and for those of you who don't know, a forever stamp uh, is always equal in value to the then-current first-class mail one-ounce rate. And some of the forever stamps that are going to be issued in 2012 are bicycling forever stamps. It's a panel of four stamps, including a young child just learning to ride with training wheels, a commuter pedaling to work, a road cyclist intent on, as they say, the finish line, and a BMX racer in mid-jump. According to Stephen Kearney, manager for Stamp Services, quote, we are excited to promote one of the nation's most popular outdoor activities, with the issuance of these four bicycling stamps. These days, increasing numbers of Americans ride bikes to work or use them to run neighborhood errands. Many travel organizations offer cycling tours from leisurely half-day jaunts to weeks-long excursions. No matter how long the ride, choosing to bike rather than to drive cuts down on traffic congestion, fuel consumption, and vehicle emissions, which benefits the environment and helps improve air quality. These stamps will be available in 2012 from any place where you buy postage stamps, from banks to, of course, post offices. Look for them in 2012. I think they're going to be a great way to address a letter and increase awareness for the sport we love and for the activity that can indeed help save our cities from traffic and our planet from pollution. Well, here's something you don't hear about every day and Sometimes even when you do hear about it, you get different angles on it. John Hearn in Panama City, Florida, remember that Florida part, was on his 12-mile commute to Tyndall Air Force Base when, while riding his bicycle at about 23 miles per hour, he went from 23 miles per hour to zero. He ran into something. Well, according to uh, John he described the collision as being, quote, like tackled by a furry, toned, bony body in football. Because you see, John Hearn in Panama City, Florida, during his 12-mile commute, ran into a black bear, a 300-pound black bear. He said, I saw something big and black out of the corner of my eye. Then it hit me and I felt bear all over my leg. One witness, Debbie McLeod, said, at first I didn't know what happened. The bear was flying across the road from the left side to the right. I thought he was going to miss the rider, but then I saw a fluorescent colored vest fly up in the air, and I knew the bear hit him. Well, other than a few cuts and grazes, and yes, a mangled bike, Mr. Hearn was okay. He said, in the last four years, he's been hit by cars twice, never a bear, saying this is by far the worst damage done to my body and to my bike. Now, according to Lieutenant Stan Kirkland of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Con uh, Commission, this is not unusual that people would see bears. However, hitting one is quite unusual. He said, quote, you hear about people seeing bears, but you never, never being hit by one. That's usually about deer or wild hogs. 
he said. Here's what made this interesting to me. Besides the fact that, I mean, I didn't even know there were black bears in Florida. Besides the fact that this poor guy is just trying to ride to work and runs into a bear, um, what was interesting was, you know, I go through a lot of news as I prepare to put the Fredcast together. And what was interesting was most of the stories characterized it as a collision, just as this did. Either uh, Mr. Hearn hit the bear or the bear hit Mr. Hearn. It was a completely accidental event. One newspaper, however, and I'll, I'll leave it nameless, but one newspaper, perhaps in an attempt to sell newspapers, get headlines, maybe it was link bait for the internet, they characterized it as the bear attacking the cyclist. I read numerous articles on this. It's pretty clear to me uh, that what happened here was just a simple collision of uh, two bodies occupying the same space at the same time. Nevertheless, if you are riding your bike in uh, the panhandle of Florida, might not be a bad idea to put some bear bells on your bike so that this does not happen to you. Well, that's going to do it for the general cycling news tonight, but I do now want to move to professional cycling news because we've just completed what is arguably the most difficult athletic event on the face of the earth, the three weeks of the Tour de France, uh, the world's most famous and perhaps most grueling bicycle racing event. Now, let's go back a few weeks. And recall some comments that I made here and certainly on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast about how, well, quite frankly, my faith in professional cycling had been shaken. How the, re the doping scandals uh, of the recent and not so recent past about how uh, the sanctioning body has behaved that all of that leading up to the Tour de France and, and including the inclusion of Alberto Contador, the winner of the 2010 edition of the Tour de France, but whose, whose victory is currently clouded and marred in suspicion over the positive clenbuterol test and how I felt that Alberto Contador shouldn't have been allowed to be in this year's Tour de France uh, because I felt that his case needed to be adjudicated and that any achievements that he might make in this year's tour uh, would be subject to suspicion and certainly uh, to the inclusion of an asterisk at the end of his name. You also know that I was away during, or you may know that I was away during the first week of the Tour de France as I went to Italy for my cycling tour uh, uh, to go ride in the Italian and Swiss Alps and the Dolomites. And so, I was kind of welcoming the fact that I was frankly missing the first week or much of the first week of the Tour de France. But while I was in Italy, of course, I did have the opportunity to watch Eurosport and some of the other European networks uh, in English, in Italian, in German, in French. Uh, and then, of course, when I returned, uh, uh, as always, I got sucked into the Tour de France, getting up early, as many of you did, to watch the tour uh, and uh, becoming quickly engrossed in all of the drama and all of the spectacle that is uh, this 100-year-old event. As you also know, for many years I've been saying, well, not for many years, but for the past few years I've been saying, look at this Andy Schleck guy. He's got the legs. He's got the talent to win the Tour de France. This year, 
like the last couple. If I was to to pick one person I was rooting for, it probably was, as the tour started, Andy Schleck. As this tour unfolded, however, I became a bit disillusioned with the Schleck brothers, both both Andy and Frank, and with uh, the tactics that they were employing, with what I viewed as a lack of aggression, too much marking the other riders, too much watching each other, and not enough aggression, not enough attacking. Um, I became enthralled by the story of Johnny Hoogerland and uh, the tragedy that occurred occurred to him as that media car uh, hit one rider into him. He goes flying and falls into uh, the barbed wire fence and uh, gets back on his bike and finishes the stage. Uh, I was enthralled by the story of Tor Husovd. Uh, and his victories, uh, and similarly, uh, Boas and Hagen's victory. Uh, I was enthralled by Thomas Vokler, this French cyclist who, when he first entered the pro peloton, was, was well, picked on by the rest of the cyclists in the peloton, who now wore the yellow jersey with pride for his home country of France, uh, giving them, uh, at least for a number of days, uh, the pride and the feeling that, yes, French cyclists are back, and yes, a Frenchman m- may be able to wear the maillot jaune on the Champs-Élysées once again. Uh, and, and, and simply the pride uh, on Vokler's face every time that he pulled on that yellow jersey. And even when people said, oh, he can't keep that jersey again tomorrow, and for Vokler to get back up on that podium and raise that bouquet of flowers and that lion above his head in his yellow jersey in triumph. Uh, It was a great story. And then to witness as the peloton reached the foot of the Alps and the efforts by Frank Schleck, by Andy Schleck, by Jens Voigt, by Cadell Evans, by Thomas Volkler, by even, dare I say, Alberto Contador. It was impossible not to become completely engrossed in the tour. To It was impossible to avert your eyes from the TV set or the computer screen as the racers uh, went at each other in the closing days of the 2011 Tour de France. Andy Schleck attacking 60, attacking 60 kilometers out on a difficult mountain stage was epic. Unfortunately, at the end, he went perhaps a few kilometers too early because Cadell Evans put in a just a hellacious dig to get up those mountains to uh, not allow Andy to take too much time. And for Vokler then to come back in the yellow jersey that night was nothing short of spectacular. Alberto Contador's effort on the stage that included the Telegraph and the Galibier and the Alpe d'Huez was a sight to behold. And many observers looked at Alberto Contador in the days and weeks uh, prior to and felt, here's a man who, if he did dope last year, does not look like a man who's doping this year. Uh, a man who isn't a Superman in the mountains, but is a a mere mortal cyclist who has a lot of legs and a lot of talent and a lot of training. And so his effort in the Alps was to be admired. 
Many of us felt that this was perhaps, other than the transgression or perceived transgression by Alexander Kolobnev, who was thrown out of the tour and sacked by his Katusha team for uh, a positive A and B test during, during the tour, many of us felt that other than that, this was what appeared to be perhaps the cleanest tour in recent years and is why so many observers felt that we were looking at finally what looked like old-fashioned cycling, a mano-a-mano duel in some cases, uh, a parody among the cyclists to where it came down to strategy, tactics, in some cases a little bit of luck and some opportunity to allow people to gain advantages. Now, on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast over the weekend, I asked each of the participants in the podcast um, simply to give their reactions as I called out individual names. Many of the names I've already given you here. Hoogerland and Contador and Schleck and Evans and Vokler, Vinokorov, who unfortunately uh, crashed out ending his career uh, uh, this year. No matter what you think of him, as a uh, uh, as a convicted doper, uh, it's sad to see anybody's career end in the way that Vokl- uh, excuse me that Vinokurov's career ended this year. So as we went through the spokesman, that's exactly what I did. I said I felt that this year's tour was about personalities uh, and about the stories behind those personalities and the achievements or lack thereof, in their performance in this year's Tour de France. We're getting a little bit raked over the coals a little bit because while um, I lauded Cadell Evans for his strategy and his tactics and his, his, his physicality and the emotion that he put into uh, the win and said that he deserved to win, uh, and while I lauded uh, what he did on that day, going up the backside of the Galibier to reel Andy Schleck back in, um, I also said he, I didn't think he was my, my favorite, favorite professional cyclist, uh, that there were things in his past, uh, some of uh, the emotional outbursts. And by, by that, I don't mean uh, his tears on the podium in the Tour de France. I thought that that, that was sweet. I thought that that was entirely... Um, appropriate that uh, I got emotional watching him do that. But some of the anger that he's shown, uh, some of the comments that he's made over the years, that, that makes him not my favorite professional cyclist. Having said that, however, what a performance. Uh, 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 whether it was uh, in, in, the, in the opening days of this year's tour or certainly in the closing days as he literally, as I said, pulled back Andy Schleck on that mountain stage as he blew away Andy and Frank in the time trial. Cadell Evans deserved his victory in this year's Tour de France, and uh, uh, my compliments and kudos to him. But we're getting a little bit raked over the coals for that, despite all of that. It was one of the last things that I said on this year's, uh, on on our wrap-up on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast that I'll take away from this year's Tour de France. As the waning days of, of the 2011 Tour de France uh, arrived, uh, my tweets, uh, my comments became more positive about the tour. Uh, and toward the end, uh, I was giving a lot of credit to guys like Roland and Evans and Vokler and Contador and yes, even Schleck and certainly Voigt. And one of my Twitter followers asked me a simple question. 
And it was simply, do you believe again, David? And I think at this point, my answer is yes, I do. That this year's 2011 Tour de France, besides uh, putting a yellow jersey on the back of a man who has been attempting to win it for so long, who was the world champion but whose yellow jersey eluded him, uh, besides all of that, the performances, the personalities, the stories, what we saw um, for three weeks did something to renew my my confidence in uh, and my belief in the sport of professional cycling. It's my hope, my prayer perhaps, that uh, what we saw in this year's Tour de France is what we see from now on in professional cycling. Uh, a cleaner sport, a fairer sport, uh, a sport that we can all respect, a sport that we can all hold our heads up high and say, of which we are fans. Um, I also told a story on the spokesman this weekend about how I was out to dinner with a business colleague and he started talking about football or basketball or baseball. To be honest with you, I don't remember what it was. And I said, you know, I'm not really much of a mainstream sports fan. And he sort of cocked his head and he looked at me and he said, do you follow any sport? I said, yeah, I follow professional cycling. And he leaned back in his chair and almost chuckled uh, disdainfully. And I said, well, a lot of people feel that way, the way that 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 laugh says that you feel. And then I told him the story of Johnny Hoogland and about, and then I asked him a question and I said, can you think of a single sport, mainstream professional sport, other than professional cycling, where a man would, uh, uh, as a result of, of someone being hit by a car, getting get thrown off the field of play, flipped upside down, land on a barbed wire fence, have this, his legs uh, and, and rear end cut to ribbons, uh, requiring later 30-plus stitches, and then put on a new uniform and get back on the field of play and, and complete that day's event and the next day's? Can you think of any other professional athlete in a mainstream sport who would do that other than perhaps uh, ultimate fighting? And the answer that everybody comes up with is absolutely not. So... I think that this year's tour uh, and, and the images that I have in my mind of Johnny Hoogerland and of the Schlecks and of Jens Voigt and of certainly Thomas Volkler and Cadell Evans are the images that will bolster for me my confidence in the sport of professional cycling. So uh, that's just a little bit of a commentary on this year's Tour de France. But let's talk about just some hard numbers. Again, as far as the general classification, Cadell Evans winning the 2011 edition of the Tour de France in 86 hours, 12 minutes, and 22 seconds. Perhaps always a bridesmaid. I hope someday uh, standing atop the podium uh, because I think that, as I said, he's got the talent for it. Uh, Andy Schleck coming in second place from Team Leopard Trek, uh, 1 minute 34 seconds behind Cadell Evans. Brother Frank in third place, 2 minutes 30 back of Cadell Evans. Thomas Vokler, the Frenchman who wore the yellow jersey for so many days in this year's Tour de France, in fourth place ahead of last year's winner, Alberto Contador in fifth. Vokler, 320 back of Evans and Alberto Contador Three minutes, 57 seconds back. Rounding out the top 10, Sammy Sanchez, Damiano Cunigo, Ivan Basso, 
Tom Danielson, and Jean-Christophe Perraud. In Oh, by the way, Cadell Evans has now announced that he will be skipping the uh, 2011 Vuelta a España. There is a chance, however, uh, that because his BMC squad will be here in Colorado for the USA Pro Challenge, there is a chance that this year's Tour de France champion may come to the United States to uh, join his BMC squad in their attempt at winning uh, that first ever USA Pro Challenge. In the green jersey this year, um, no surprise, although it was up for contest in the final stage on the Champs-Élysées, winning on the Champs-Élysées again and taking home another green jersey, Mark Cavendish from Great Britain. Second place in the points went to Jose Joaquin Rojas, third to Philippe Gilbert, fourth to winner Cadell Evans, fifth to Tor Hussov, followed by Edvald Bozenhagen, Andre Greipel, Tyler Farah, Sammy Sanchez, and Alberto Contador. As far as top team honors, that went to Team Garmin Cervello, who had an excellent Tour de France, followed by Team Leopard Trek, AG2R, uh, Volkler's Europe Car Team, Euskaltel Euskadi, Sky, Katusha, Saxo Bank, F, uh, Francaise du Jeu, and Cofidis. Sammy Ch- Sanchez takes home the polka dot jersey to Spain, followed by Andy Schleck, Yella Vandenert, Cadell Evans, Frank Schleck, Alberto Contador, Jeremy Roy, Pierre Roland, Maxime Iglinski, and Johnny Hoogerland. And finally, uh, the winner of the Alpe d'Huez stage, taking home the white jersey as the best young rider and someone on whom we're going to have our eye. And I think uh, France may see uh, a future Tour de France Victor in Pierre Roland, followed by Rain Taaramae, Jerome Coppel, Arnold Jinnison, Rob Ruij, Rigoberto Uran, Geraint Thomas, Robert Gessink, Cyril Gauthier, and Andre Zeitz. As a result of his victory in the Tour de France, Cadell Evans moves up in the world rankings as of July 25th, moving up from fourth place to first place. Staying in second place, Alberto Contador. Moving to third from first place is Philippe Gilbert, followed by Michel Scarpone, Sammy Sanchez, uh, Joaquin Rodriguez, Frank Schleck, followed by brother Andy Schleck, and then their teammate, Fabian Consolara, and in 10th place. And unfortunately, he'll simply drop in the rankings for the rest of the year because he is now retired from professional cycling from Team Astana, Alexander Vinokorov. Well, the Tour de France does not represent the end of the professional cycling reason and, uh, season, and not by a long shot. We have several races uh, coming up over the next few weeks and going all the way through the rest of the year. But the next four races coming up, the Clásica Ciclista San Sebastián on July the 30th, followed by the Tour de Pologne, July 31st through August the 6th. Then it's the Eneco Tour, August 8th through August 14th followed by the third and final Grand Tour of the year, the Vuelta a España, August 20th through September 11th. And don't forget, of course, here in the United States, two big races coming up as well. August 9th through the 14th will be the Tour of Utah, and August 28th through the 28th will be the inaugural USA Pro Cycling Challenge in Colorado. 
And by the way, if you are a fan of professional cycling and you also own an iPhone, the UCI, the official sanctioning body of professional cycling, has just released a new version of their UCI iPhone app, which provides you with up-to-the-minute news, photos, results, and videos in a, in a pretty visually pleasing way and easy to use, a very intuitive application. I just downloaded it and put it on my iPhone and had to pause the recording while I played with it for a little while. Uh, it's a really nice little app and a great way to sort of keep up on what's going on with uh, the sanctioning body uh, and everything that's going on in virtually every aspect of professional cycling. There are links in the show notes, so go ahead and check it out. A few moments ago in discussing my feelings leading up to this year's 2011 edition of the Tour de France, I mentioned the case of Alberto Contador. As you know, Alberto Contador won the 2010 edition of the Tour de France, but that victory was soon marred by the revelation of a positive doping test for the banned substance clenbuterol. Alberto Contador defended himself, saying that if there was clenbuterol in his system, it was the result of eating contaminated beef. The Spanish Cycling Federation sided with Contador, setting aside any sanction against the rider, essentially deeming him innocent of any doping charges. The UCI and the World Anti-Doping Agency, however, appear to be saying that they believe that that was a political decision rather than a technical or judicial decision, and therefore have appealed the acquittal of Alberto Contador to the final arbiter uh, in cases like this, the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne, Switzerland. Now, that appeal was originally scheduled to take place prior to the Tour de France, and it was then postponed until after the tour, originally scheduled for next week, August 1st. However, today we learned that that case is now going to be pushed back even further to November of 2011. According to a statement on the Court of Arbitration for Sport website, it has, quote, allowed a request for a second exchange of written submissions between the parties as well as for a new procedural calendar. They said that the decision was taken with the, quote, unanimous agreement of the three other parties. And as a consequence of the party's request, the hearing, which was scheduled for the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of August, is canceled and will be rescheduled for new dates probably in November 2011. So for those of you who are looking for a swift uh, resolution in the Alberto Contador case, unfortunately, you're going to have to wait several more months. Meanwhile, uh, besides, as I mentioned earlier, Cadell Evans missing this year's Vuelta a España, Alberto Contador also says that he will similarly not compete in this year's Vuelta a España. Whether or not that has anything to do with the Court of Arbitration for Sport case or simply for the fact that after three weeks of battling it out in the Tour de France, he may be tired, understandably so, and not have the time to put in uh, adequate recovery between the two races, which is probably more likely we may never know. 
Another former Tour de France winner who is also fighting his own battles in court, Lance Armstrong's legal team recently filed a motion in federal court in California asking a judge to investigate leaks from the grand jury proceedings as a result of the government's investigations into whether or not uh, Lance Armstrong and his uh, U.S. Postal Service team were involved in uh, doping uh, and other uh, possible crimes such as conspiracy and fraud. As you may recall, several weeks ago, we talked about the case of Tyler Hamilton going on 60 Minutes and making certain allegations against Lance Armstrong. And around the same time, there were other leaks that came out of the grand jury testimony, uh, specifically around uh, cyclists like George Hincapie. Hincapie never uh, confirming the statements that were attributed to him, but everyone felt that those statements may have been leaked from the grand jury testimony. According to a 20-page motion filed last week by Lance Armstrong's attorneys, quote, each leak has revealed information damaging to Armstrong's reputation and has been carefully calculated to drum up publicity and cultivate public support for an investigation that is, to say the least, questionable in both its motive and its merits. In their motion, Armstrong's lawyers also pointed out Jeff Nowitzki, the individual who is leading uh, the investigation into Lance Armstrong and U.S. Postal. Nowitzki, as you recall, was also involved in several other very high-profile doping in sports cases. And according to Armstrong's lawyers, and the motion that was filed, uh, those investigations were also riddled with leaks, and they're therefore pointing a finger of blame at Jeff Nowitzki. Uh, United States pros prosecutors uh, have a chance to file their opposition brief uh, following Armstrong's motion, and they should be doing that very, very soon. And finally, the UCI has now introduced legislation that will ban those who have failed doping tests and who have been judged guilty by the world bodies and the world doping bodies from having used doping products, performance-enhancing drugs during their career as racers. This new rule will ban those individuals from working within the sport of professional cycling after they leave the racing peloton. They've ruled that anyone who fails a test from July 1, 2011 and on will not be allowed to work in any non-racing capacity within the sport. However, they will not make this rule retroactive so that, for instance, Bjarne Reese, who runs uh, Team Saxobank, who has also admitted to using doping products and performance-enhancing drugs during his professional cycling career, he would be allowed to stay within the sport. According to the statement from the UCI, quote, we aim to prevent anyone found guilty of infringing the regulations during his cycling career from obtaining a license. This rule will cover any rider who wants to join a team as, according to their statement, quote, a general manager, team manager, coach, doctor, paramedical assistant, mechanic, 
driver, or other function as specified on the license. However, it will allow a band rider to join a team after a five-year absence from the sport if they committed only one doping offense that was not sanctioned by a two- or more-year ban. Personally, while I don't always agree with everything that the UCI does, in this case, I think that this rule is right on point. Well, that's going to do it for the news on this week's episode of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. I've got two features for you today, starting with one that I teased at the beginning of the show as we were talking about the road rage incident that was caught on someone's helmet camera. And I thought I would tell you a story because I think that it is, well, indicative of things that we deal with all the time out there on the road, uh, indicative of things that maybe you shouldn't do as a cyclist, and also a bit uh, illustrative of the kinds of things that we have to deal with uh, as we are out riding. So last weekend, Mrs. Fred Cast and I were out for a ride uh, doing a local climb on a fairly popular road for a lot of cyclists to ride. We had literally just begun the ride. We were maybe five miles into what was probably going to be about a 40 or 50 mile day. And uh, we were on a small two-lane rural country road. There is no bike lane and barely a shoulder. Uh, from the white line signifying the edge of the roadway to uh, then the edge of the actual asphalt, uh, there's maybe 6 or 12 inches. And much of that area uh, is usually filled with debris uh, and potholes. It's usually the worst, uh, the part of the road that's in the worst condition. So in a case like that, if you can, at least my philosophy is, if I can be to the right of the right line, so outside the roadway, I will do so. But if not, I'll either be on the white line or just over it to wherever it's safe for me to ride. And by the way, the law of the state of Utah and indeed the laws of most states in the United States tell me that even if there's a bike lane uh, on the right portion of the roadway or outside the normal uh, portion of the roadway where cars will drive, even if there's a bike lane there, that I'm only required to ride as far right as is safe or practicable. So if you've got a bike lane, it's full of debris or glass or trash or potholes, and it's not safe for you to ride there, it's okay for you to come over into the into the uh, uh, portion of the road that's normally occupied by cars. Indeed, again, in most jurisdictions, you're allowed to take the entire lane. In this case, however... Uh, Mrs. Fred Cast was riding ahead of me, uh, and I just wanted to go her pace because we were going to be doing some climbing. Uh, she's uh, not incredibly uh, fast at climbing, and so I didn't want to get too far ahead. We were out to ride together. So I was riding behind her, um, and several cars went, were, went by us. Uh, all of a sudden, I hear one behind us who honks. Now, when he honked, uh, there were no cars, oncoming cars. I could see at least a half to three quarters of a mile down the road, there were no cars coming. And there were also no cars going in our direction. There was just obviously the apparent vehicle behind me that I heard honk. Uh, I looked down to see where I was in the road. I was 
maybe a few inches to the left of the white line. So I was within the roadway, but I was by no way, shape, or form taking up the entire lane, uh, and there was plenty of room uh, for this uh, car to go by. Well, what ended up happening was, uh, and by the way, here in the state of Utah, we have a three-foot law, which means that cars are required to give cyclists three feet or more of clearance as they go by. And this has been touted on billboards and on TV and radio ads, something that is uh, getting a lot of attention here in the state of Utah. Well, this individual, however, instead of giving me three feet, uh, gave my head uh, about six inches from his right side mirror on his large pickup truck. Uh, went by, honked again. As I said, I, I, I I was really a bit frightened as, as this mirror went buzzing by my head um, and quite upset because not only was I in danger, but my wife was in danger as well, and there was plenty of room for this guy to go by. Now, this is where the heat of the moment kicked in, and this is when my right arm went up, and instead of waving with all five fingers, I simply only waved with one. Um, I shouldn't have done that. But it was a complete heat of the moment uh, um, kind of knee-jerk reaction to literally being threatened. Uh, there was no reason for him to come so close. He honked clearly thinking that we shouldn't be there and uh, decided that he would threaten uh, uh, the silly cyclists in their tight clothes. So my middle finger goes up. He went about 200 yards down the road. I think he thought about what he had seen in his rearview mirror, and he literally stopped his car in the middle of the traffic lane and got out and got to the back of his truck about the time that we got there as we continued riding. Heads down, not wanting to, at this point, engage in any other behavior that might um, provoke the individual yelled at us. You were riding side by side, which we weren't doing, and by the way, which is legal in the state of Utah. Um, you were riding side by side. Who do you think you are for flipping me off? And then, after Mrs. Fredcast passed, he made a move toward me, One, a move that I think that the L.A. City Ordinance that we talked about earlier in the show would have considered threatening behavior and would have allowed me to take the individual to civil uh, to a civil case, uh, made a move as if he was going to try to push me off my bike, got within a few inches, and then backed off. I continued to ride. As I went past the front of his vehicle, I turned around, and I made note of his license plate number. He yelled at me for doing that. He didn't like the fact that I had done that. It reminded me a bit of the individuals in the video who were so upset that the cyclists who had gotten their license number. They were so upset at that 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 provoked them to come out of their car and strike the cyclist. I made mental note of the license plate number and continued driving and was quite nervous as he passed us again. Um, Mrs. Fredcast and I stopped. We discussed it. She, of course, was not happy with the fact that I had flipped the guy off. Uh, and uh, and I said, look, we weren't doing anything wrong. We were We were um, well within our rights. We were not riding side by side. Even if we were, that would have been legal. We hadn't taken the lane, even though we could have done that as well. Um, and she simply said, listen, rednecks don't know that. And it was at that moment that I realized that um, our lives were in, in a bit of danger. 
that uh, certainly what I had done in the heat of the moment was perhaps no different um, in in the emotion than the driver bringing his mirror close to my head, although my finger couldn't have done any damage and his mirror quite possibly could have killed me. The point of telling you the story is this. I talk on the show about being good cycling citizens all the time. Um, and we were certainly acting as good cycling citizens until the moment that my finger went up in the air. But up until that moment, we were doing everything right. And even when you do everything right, uh, as, as was pointed out uh, by the uh, police officer in the case in Britain, Sometimes people in cars, well, they get annoyed by cyclists being on the road. And oftentimes we as cyclists get frightened by the things that cars do. And so while even though we may act as good cycling citizens, even though we may be well within our rights, we have to remember that we're still vulnerable, much more vulnerable on our bicycles than we are in our cars or in a bus or on a train. And so sometimes we need to be in control of what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Uh, and we need to try to rein in those emotional impulses as best as we can. Because in this situation, my raising of a finger, while it did no damage to the individual in the pickup truck, had he decided to make good on his threats, either with shoving me off my bike uh, and perhaps doing more physically, or by getting back in his pickup truck and doing something with his pickup truck, the results could have been catastrophic. Had I simply allowed him to honk, allowed him to come as close as he did, um, I could have avoided a, a potentially lethal confrontation. Now, having said that, the one thing that I regret not doing, besides perhaps not carrying a, a helmet cam with me on that ride, was not reporting the guy. We've talked about this on The Spokesman before, and we talk about it here on the Fredcast all the time. Oftentimes, police, depending on your jurisdiction, aren't, they're not really willing to follow up on some situations like this. A driver menaces you in the car. You don't have a whole lot of evidence. It's your word versus his. Maybe it's not really worth their time. They've got more important, air quotes, more important things uh, to do. However, there was always the possibility that this individual may have menaced cyclists or pedestrians or horseback riders or little kids in the past. There's also always the possibility that if he hadn't menaced anyone in the past, that he might menace someone again in the future. So that even if the police decided today not to do anything, it's possible that if a pattern of behavior developed uh, about this individual, around this individual, that my calling it in might have helped save cyclists in the future. So I tell you the story as almost an allegory. Um, you may say there, but for the grace of God go I. You may see yourself either as the driver or as the cyclist who in the heat of the moment decides to display his displeasure by displaying his middle finger. Take what lessons you can from the story. I've learned a lot from it. 
I hope that you have. Curious to hear how you might have handled the situation or how you've handled similar situations in the past. If you've got a compelling story, feel free to call the Fredcast listener hotline. I'll give you that number at the end of the show. Send me an email or an audio comment. If it's compelling, I will share it with the rest of the listeners. Hopefully you've learned something from this. I know that I have. For those of you who may not follow me on Twitter or perhaps who are not uh, following the blog post that I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, you may not be aware that since we last met, I have gone to Italy and returned. We talked here on the show several times about the fact that Ciclismo Classico uh, invited me to come with them on one of their tours this year, and I chose the tour entitled Famous Alpine Passes and the Maratona of the Dolomites. So I just thought I might take a few minutes here to review the tour uh, and uh, review some of my experiences and some of the things that I learned uh, both from uh, the perspective as a traveling cyclist and also from some of the products and services that I tried out and used on my tour. Let me start with Ciclismo Classico first. Ciclismo Classico is the bicycle touring company with whom I went to Italy. I told Ciclismo Classico when they first approached me that if I was going to go on one of their tours, they needed to expect that any comments that I made on the show were going to be completely unbiased. I wasn't going to color them with the fact that I was being hosted on the tour. I told them that I was going to tell my listeners the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between about the tour. And quite frankly, they welcomed that. Now, having been on one of their tours and experienced the way that Chiclismo Classico does business from planning through execution, I understand where their confidence came from. My experience with Chiclismo Classico was fantastico. It was really a great experience. I found that their pre-trip preparation documents their ability to help me prepare both before and after the tour for travel arrangements and hotels, the hotels that they chose during the tour, the meals that we had, the guides, Enrico and Massimo, everything about the tour was extremely well-planned and well-executed. From the time that we were picked up at the Bolzano train station until we were dropped off there again seven days later, again by the Ciclismo Classico shuttle van. Everything about the tour was handled for us. We really didn't need to do any thinking other than choosing what to eat at, at our meals uh, and whether or not we wanted the white wine or the red wine. Otherwise, Ciclismo Classico really handled everything. I was quite impressed. As for the hotels that they chose, I have to tell you, I, I wasn't just impressed. I was very pleasantly surprised. All of the hotels in which we stayed were excellent three-star or above hotels, pretty much what you expect on most cycling tours, but several of the hotels were superior four-star affairs with huge rooms, extremely well-appointed, very comfortable, and very amazing staffs. At each of the hotels we were hosted at dinner, there was only one night that dinner was not included. And each of those dinners was a three, four, or five-course meal. All of the food was very, very good. As for the guides, Enrico and Massimo, both of them each have, I believe, at least 12 years' experience as cycle tour guides. They're experienced. 
They're personable. They have great senses of humor. Their English was superb. And by the way, uh, a, half of our group was American and half was Venezuelan. And both Enrico and Massimo did just fine in Spanish as well as in English, although our Venezuelan friends had no problem speaking in, in English as well. Uh, they were excellent guides. They're very, very exceptional cyclists, uh, bike mechanics, uh, and at some points, they're even coaches and mentors and just friends. When, you're, uh, when you've just completed a very difficult mountain pass on your bike and you feel like you can't go any farther, there's Enrico and Massimo with food, with smiles, and with encouragement, and yes, even in some cases, with hugs to make sure that everybody made it through the trip and had a superlative experience. Now, what about the cycling itself? We had a very, this, I got to say, for a Chiclismo Classico trip, having looked through their brochure, and if you haven't had a chance, go check out their website. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. This is definitely one of Chiclismo's most difficult tours. At the end of the tour, I had put in about 400 kilometers and about 32,000 feet of climbing. And you have to remember that when I did the last day's event, you may not know this if you haven't read my blog, there's three courses at the Maratona. I'll get to that in a moment. And I did the short one. So while I had 32,000 feet of climbing over a week's riding, there were people at 35, 36,000 feet of climbing. So this was a difficult event. But wow, what amazing scenery and what fantastic roads on which to cycle. We were in the far north of Italy, a portion of the country that at one time had been Austrian before World War II. So there's a heavy Germanic influence throughout the region. As a matter of fact, I've been commenting that for, for much of the time, I really didn't feel like I was in Italy other than the fact that people were speaking Italian because the architecture, the buildings, the people, the food, very heavily uh, influenced by their Austrian roots. The first day, a very easy sort of shakedown cruise, maybe 10 or 15 miles as we all got a chance to stretch our legs and give our bikes a try, whether they were the rental bikes, the Bianchis that were provided to us by Ciclismo Classico, or in some cases, the bikes that people brought from home. Uh, but then after that, the second day, it was all up. And as I remember uh, Enrico saying one day, uh, and yes, when you get to the top of the pass, you go up again. And it seemed like that's the way it was day after day. And by the way, I am not complaining. But the second day, after many of us were still battling with uh, jet lag and fatigue from our trip, ah, that doesn't matter. Time to go do the Stelvio Pass. The Stelvio Pass of fame, of the Giro d'Italia fame, a very tough but beautiful climb up to the Stelvio Pass where there's a great statue of Fausto Coppi, everybody taking pictures with Fausto and then as Fausto as we all tried to uh, uh, mimic his, uh, uh, his face in the statue. And, and from there, it was just more beautiful cycling. And by the way, when we did the Paso Stelvio, we left the Italian Alps and went into the Swiss Alps for a short period of time, circling back into Italy, staying in Italy for the rest of the trip. We did a lot of fantastic passes. Some of these names you'll know from the Giro, some of them from other famous cycling races, the Paso Palade, the Paso Mendola, the Paso Pinay, and the Paso Sella. Uh, and then we got into the Dolomites where we did the Paso Fedaia, Falsarego, and Valparola. And then we had a rest day. Some people went cycling. Many of us, including me, decided not to. And then we did the Maratona itself. 
somewhere in the middle, my mom, who was reading the blogs, asked a great question. And she said, I'm just wondering, do sort of citizen cyclists like you enjoy all this pain and suffering? And we got some great comments in the blog as a result. And then we led up to uh, our stay in Corvara. Corvara is the center, the epicenter of the Maritona of the Dolomites. The Maritona, for those of you who may not recall, is perhaps Italy, maybe even Europe's best known Grand Fondo. Celebrated its 25th year this year as I rode the course. And a Grand Fondo, for those of you who aren't aware, is a group, a mass ride event, much like centuries and double centuries and metric centuries that many of you have done or charity rides that you've done. But this one is timed. Everybody gets a timing chip. And so I'm fond of saying that a Grand Fondo is a race for the first 10 people and then a ride for the rest of us. Um, But how cool is it to be able to participate in a race at the same time as guys like Paolo Bettini. Bettini was on the course at the same time we were, and that's that's kind of cool. I've, I never thought I'd do a race with Paolo Bettini before, and that was really neat. The Maritona attracts more than 10,000 cyclists to the Dolomites uh, every year, and it is quite a spectacle. Check out my pictures on the blog, uh, because... Uh, whereas when you do a charity ride or when you do a, a century perhaps in your hometown, everybody usually starts about the same time. Here it's a little bit di- different because you've got narrow roads and 10,000 people that you need to get up these roads and up these uh, first passes, starting with the Paso Campolongo. And not only do you have that many people, but you have people all over Italy watching on live TV. So when you think about the shots that you see in the Giro or the Vuelta or the Tour de France, and you think about those sweeping helicopter shots, well, we had two or three helicopters sweeping over us throughout most of the day, including as we were standing in the starting grids waiting to get going. Uh, because what they would do is they put the former pros and the advanced amateurs at the front of the starting line. And then they had another grid behind them with the ladies who were racing. And then behind them, they had the rest of us, if you will. And so even after the race began at 6.30 in the morning, uh, we really didn't get on the road for another 15 or 20 minutes thereafter. And when we did, imagine going up twisty, narrow Alpine roads with 10,000 people. And you can read my description of that in the blog. I've done a lot of group rides, as you know. I mean, just think about a few years ago when I did a century a month and and all of the charity rides I've done and all the centuries and things like that over my uh, cycling career, if you will. But I have to say, and even being somebody who has has helped uh, organize and run some of these events, I have to say that the Maritona was perhaps one of the best organized events I've ever seen. From the way that they have their initial lottery for entries to the way that they apportion and distribute registration materials to their expo, the shuttle buses that are available to take you from one small town to the next uh, in order to help alleviate traffic on the small alpine roads, to the way that they do the starting grids and the live TV, uh, the the rest stops and the support along the route. It really is a sight to behold. Uh, All the way through when you get to the finish line and then the, the the meal for the cyclists and the the way that they they give out the prizes to the cyclists it really was perhaps the most uh, the best organized event i've ever seen and certainly the post ride meal was the single best post ride meal i have ever had at 
any cycling event, bar none. It really was amazing. And then even what they do afterwards, you can go on the website, you can download your finisher's certificate, you can buy a DVD, and you can preview it online first, of videos showing your arrival at the top of every mountain pass and at the finish line. I'd never seen that before. And then, of course, the ability to purchase the photos of yourself riding. And I've never seen any of that come out as quickly as it did after the Maratona. So if you are thinking about doing a classic Grand Fondo event in Europe, I would highly encourage you to consider doing uh, the Maratona of the Dolomites. If you do it through a tour group like Ciclismo Classico, you are guaranteed your entry spot uh, or you can take your chances on the lottery. And they've got a pretty good system for that. If you don't get in the first year, if you don't get in the second year, you are guaranteed a spot the third year, which I think is a really fair way of apportioning entries. It was a spectacular event. Now, for specific details about every day of my ride, including my route maps from my Garmin Edge 500, including my photographs, and including a lot of pros. Trust me, I've learned blogging is difficult, but I was pleased to do it and pleased to bring you the data. Go to the show notes, and I've got a special link that will just show you all the blog posts for my Maratona tour, starting from before I left Salt Lake City until I was on the final airplane home. I think that you'll find them compelling and interesting uh, from a lot of different perspectives. So I hope that you'll check that out. Remember, just like any blog, when you go to that page, start at the bottom and work your way up. And I'm warning you, the day of the ride, that blog post is really long. So uh, grab your favorite beverage and sit down and enjoy the ride, if you will. So a couple of things that I learned uh, and a couple of products that I tried out and used during, uh, products and services that I used during my tour that I thought maybe I might uh, present to you as some important information, maybe some mini reviews, and also some tips, words to the wise as you consider doing your own bicycle tours, whether it's with Ciclismo Classico or someone else. First of all, if you're going to travel internationally, I think one of the first considerations is going to be, should I bring my bicycle? Now, I've, I've done two international bicycle tours now, one in France and one in Italy. The first tour in France, I brought my bicycle with me. And it turned out to be pretty much of a hassle because as I flew into Lyon Airport, I needed to get on a train uh, to go to Annecy in France. And it was just a real hassle maneuvering with my bike through the airport, through the train station, certainly on the train and off the train, uh, and then through the train station there as well. And then, of course, reversing all of that again as I went home. So for this tour, I had a choice. Would I bring my bicycle or would I use one of Ciclismo's uh, Bianchi Neurones that they use for the majority of their guests? And I made the decision that because my trip involved two flights, a bus ride, two trains, and then a walk of a few blocks through Bolzano in Italy, that it probably wasn't the best idea for me to bring my bike. It worked out just fine. The Bianchi Neroni was a fine uh, bicycle, well-equipped, certainly very well-maintained, and anything that may have come up, and nothing did, I know that Enrico and Massimo would have been able to help me out with it. However, if it's not your bike, if it's not, if it hasn't been professionally fitted to you, it's not always going to be 
that same feel that you get when you're on your own bike. Look, the Bianchi is heavier than my Colnago. Uh, the, uh, the Bianchi was an aluminum bike. My Colnago is carbon fiber. I prefer that kind of a ride. Uh, have I said the Bianchi was heavier than my Colnago? Just little things. Obviously, it wasn't professionally fitted for me. I did fine on the bike. Certainly, on some of the steeper terrain, I I will be honest with you, uh, I didn't begrudge the fact that it had a triple and that my Colnago has a double non-compact drive. Uh, but still, in retrospect, I think if I were to do it again, I think I would take my own bike. And actually now I'm considering if I'm going to be doing more uh, bicycle touring, whether it's here in the States or internationally, I'm considering whether or not I want to get myself uh, a bike specifically for touring um, a road bike specifically for touring, perhaps with SNS couplings or maybe a Ritchie breakaway system. So you need to weigh whether or not you're going to bring your own bike. But even if you don't bring your own bike, some things that are common sense that you should bring with you and some things that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Clearly, bring your helmet, bring your shoes, bring your pedals. Some people didn't think about, and I'm glad that I did, bring your own saddle. Because saddles are personal, saddles uh, are a lot of times broken in and you're comfortable on them and you never know what the saddle on the rental bike is going to be and whether or not you're going to be comfortable on that, especially with the kind of riding that we were doing. Difficult long days in the saddle and uh, that rear end bicycle connection is pretty important and the last thing you want is to be in agony with saddle sores and chafing and things like that because you've got a saddle that you're not comfortable on. Another thing that a lot of people didn't think about, bringing your own bike computer and the sensors that go along with it. As I said earlier, I brought my Garmin Edge 500 and I brought the speed and cadence sensor that goes with it so that that way I knew I was going to have the metrics I wanted, although I didn't have power, uh, and I was going to be able to then download that data into the computer, thereby showing you the maps of our rides and then having something that I could keep forever uh, as a bit of uh, a memento of the trip. And plus, I had a computer that was giving me the metrics and presenting them to me in the way that I liked and uh, one that I already knew how to use. Finally, and maybe I'm a little bit strange on this, uh, and this is not an ad and I don't get these for free. This is simply a personal preference. I've talked on the show before that uh, once I tried a Camelback podium bottle, you were never getting me to use another water bottle ever again. And then once I tried the Podium Chill and the Podium Ice, I was done. That's all I would ever use. So I did bring my own water bottles as well on the trip, and I'm glad that I did because, once again, with this kind of riding, the need for hydration is important. Sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you because I didn't arrive in Italy in the best shape, to, to be truthful. Uh, sometimes just gripping that water bottle, getting that squeeze, it's all you can do. And knowing that I had the water bottles that I was comfortable with, that may sound trivial, but to me it made a huge difference. Something else I think that you always need to bring uh, when you go on a tour uh, or any long ride for that matter, uh, bringing a rain jacket is important. Our weather was beautiful, fantastic the entire time. But I was glad that I had a rain jacket with me and one that was easily tucked into the pocket of my jersey. And that's because... When you get up to the top of the summit and you're at 20, you know, 2,000 meters or 2,500 meters, it's a bit chillier up there. And now you're hot and sweaty because you've been 
uh, riding for an hour or two to get to the top of that mountain. And now you've got a long, fast ascent. And that speed coupled with the, the wet jersey is going to get you chilled. And so simply being able to tug on a jacket uh, was something that was very, very welcome. Look, we're not in the Tour de France. People aren't handing us jerseys, excuse me, aren't handing us newspapers to stuff down the front of our jerseys. Carry that rain jacket with you as well. I think one thing that I would also recommend, and this is something that I didn't do, is taking your training extremely seriously. If you're going to go out and you're going to do a difficult uh, tour like I did, uh, train more than I did. Unfortunately, as you know, I travel a lot for business and that definitely cuts into my training time. I took the folding bike with me as often as I could on trips. I used the hotel gym whenever that I could. Uh, for me, that doesn't always translate into good cycling fitness. Uh, and so I arrived in Italy not in the greatest of shape. Trust me, by the middle of the week, I was getting up there in fitness. But it would have been nice to have taken my training just a little bit more seriously and arrived in a little better shape. Take a lot of pictures. Carry a camera with you. And I don't just mean your cell phone camera. If you can, if you've got a little pocket digital camera uh, with decent resolution and a decent lens, tuck that in your pocket or put it in a bento box on your uh, top tube because you may never get to this back to this part of the world again. And while I was on a performance tour and it required keeping up with the group uh, and not slowing anyone down, although it was completely a no-drop uh, uh, tour and everybody waited, you still feel a little bit of pressure. Nevertheless, I still stopped because I knew that there was a, every possibility I may never get back to some of these roads again. So make sure that you stop along the way. It sort of goes with my mantra of enjoy the ride, right? Enjoy the scenery as well and make sure you take it home with you so you can share it with your friends. Um, two issues that I had. One was before I went away on the trip, I did sort of an inventory of my cycling gloves and found I was a bit deficient. And I ran out to the, the local Pearl Izumi outlet here in Park City and I picked up some new gloves and I got several pairs of them. Uh, and I wish that I had done that far sooner and I wish I had just started with one because the gloves that I chose for long riding, uh, uh, long days of, of gripping the bar and, and using the bar for leverage, for climbing, these were not the appropriate gloves. And I spent a lot of money on several pairs of them. So I've given this advice to you in the past. Maybe I'm not good at taking my own advice, but I hope that you'll take the advice. Before you go on a ride like this, always make sure that anything you're bringing with you, anything you're trying, you've tried for weeks leading up to it so that you know that it's going to work. Similarly, many of us have GoPro uh, helmet cams and I chose to bring my GoPro and mount it on my handlebars, getting a brand new uh, bicycle mount from GoPro before the trip. Unfortunately, uh, after six days of riding, on the seventh day, right literally 100 yards before the start line of the Maratona, the handlebar mount broke. And I was unable, therefore, to document that day's riding and unable, and, and also had to stuff my jersey pocket with this huge bulky camera. Uh, and so that was a bit of a disappointment. So uh, one caveat I think I would make is uh, that if you're going to use a GoPro camera, uh, perhaps go with the more tried and true helmet mount uh, rather than the handlebar mount. Uh, my experience was not a positive one. Thankfully, I wasn't on a descent and it didn't go flying, uh, but uh, I personally don't think that I would put much faith in that mount ever again. Finally, 
uh, a new product that I tried uh, in advance of and during the tour. About a few weeks before the tour, I was doing some riding and I bumped very, very hard. And I realized that my on-bike nutrition intake uh, was not as good as it could be. And having interviewed the folks at Hammer Nutrition in the past before, I thought I would give it a try. And I called them, never introduced myself. I didn't want them to know who I was or, or what I was doing or even the fact that I would talk about it here on the show. I didn't want any special treatment. So to them, I'm just a membership number. Uh, and so I called them up and I've always found their offering a bit confusing because they have so many different products. I spent a good deal of time on the phone with one of their representatives who was patient, intelligent, uh, very well spoken and was able to explain their entire line to me. And by the time we got off the phone, I had ordered uh, their Endurolites electrolyte pills because I didn't want to cramp up during my rides. I had ordered their Perpetuum uh, drink mix, which uh, you put into one of the bottles on your bike and you sip from throughout an hour or two hours, whatever kind of uh, concentrated bottle you've put together. And that gives you your on-bike nutrition. I also purchased their recovery product, Recoverite, because I know how important a good recovery drink is at the end of the day. I supplemented all of that with the uh, Elixir product from Camelback, which is their uh, electrolyte fizzy that goes into your water bottle, and also with Cliff Shot Energy Gels from Cliff Bar. I have to say the combination of all of that definitely worked for me. Using the Perpetuum on the bike, uh, I wasn't hungry and I, I never bonked. Uh, I neglected to use the Endurolites on the first day on the Stelvio Pass and I started to cramp up about three kilometers from the summit. Dropped some of those pills and within the next kilometer and a half, the cramp started to go away. And I, as long as I stayed with those throughout the entire tour, I never cramped up again. Similarly, when I needed energy, I used my Cliff Shots and that absolutely worked as it always does. And I even brought some of those with caffeine for just that little bit of jolt that I would need at, at some of those climbs. Uh, and then every day I was religious about using the Recoverite drink at the end of the day and was really pleasantly surprised to find the next morning that I didn't have the level of soreness that I expected that I would. And I attribute some of that to Recoverite. I, I would say that my only um, possible criticism of the Hammer Nutrition product is their packaging. I had problems with the packaging for my Recoverite product and with the packaging for my Perpetuum product, both of which come in what look like pretty heavy-duty Ziploc-style bags. Uh, the Recoverite product bag failed uh, on the way to Europe, and the Perpetuum bag failed during the trip in Europe. To their credit, I sent Hammer Nutrition an email and let them know about it, specifically because I had to throw away most of the Recoverite product, and they were very good about replacing that, and I appreciated it. And they also said that they are in the midst of making a packaging change. So I thought that that was really good. So a bit of a long summary of the trip. Uh, so let me just sum it up very, very quickly. Chiclismo Classico was exactly that, Classico. They were a classy group who did a great job of logistics and put together a really fantastic tour, taking care of all of us so that we didn't need to worry about anything. And I would go with them again. And what's interesting is so many of the people on our trip had been on one, two, five, 12 
Chiclismo Classico tours in the past. And I think that that's a testament uh, to them. So kudos to them. They put together a great, great tour. And I'm looking forward to doing more with them in the future. Uh, the Maratona of the Dolomites. If you ever have the opportunity, I highly recommend it. Make sure that you go there in shape. And then take some of the... Uh, by the way, if you do the Maratona, read my blog post about the day of the event. Pay a little bit closer attention to the time cuts than I did uh, because I was perhaps enjoying the ride a little bit too much uh, and thereby missed uh, an important time cut. Cutting my day short doesn't mean I had a bad day. I had a beautiful, wonderful, fantastic ride of a lifetime kind of a day, but it would have been nice to make it a little bit longer day too. So pay attention to those time cuts. Uh, and finally, pay attention to some of the tips that I've given you about things to bring, things not to bring, and some of the product uh, stories that I had during the tour. It was a fantastic 10 days away. Uh, I would say that the only mistake I had was not bringing Mrs. Fredcast with me, but hopefully I'll be bringing with her with me next time. It was my pleasure to blog it for you, to bring you with me virtually the entire time. And if you didn't have the chance to read those before, now's your chance. So I hope you enjoyed the summary of the trip. Uh, it was a fantastic trip. Thank you to everybody involved for making it even more special uh, than otherwise it would have been. It was a great trip. Ciao. Whew. Well, that is going to do it for this week's episode of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. Before I talk about uh, contacting us or Podsafe Cycling Music, as always, I do need to thank our humble show sponsor, JensenUSA.com. Go to JensenUSA.com slash the Fredcast or go to the Fredcast.com and click the Jensen USA link on the right hand side of the page. Remember, you're always going to find great selection, some of the best prices around, and in comparable customer service at jensenusa.com. And don't forget right now, they've got some great deals on their complete line of Camelback products. jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast. Thanks so much for their support and thank you for supporting them. Well, don't forget there's lots of ways that you can keep in contact with the Fredcast even when you're not listening to the podcast. One way that I mentioned earlier was the blog. I did all that blogging uh, during my Maratona tour. I hope you had a chance to read it, but if you didn't, you can read about that and lots of other great stuff at www.thefredcast.com. Just sort of walk you through the site. Right there in the middle is the last, the most recent podcast. On the left-hand side below that, our podcast before that, and then in that center column, our blog posts. And then, of course, there's ads and other information on the right-hand side of the page, including how many of you noticed that I did a little video about using the bike share system in Montreal. Go ahead and check that out as well. So that's www.thefredcast.com. There's lots of other ways to keep in contact. Of course, there's the old email, which people seem not to use very often anymore because everybody likes social networking. But the original social networking on the internet is email, and that's thefredcast at gmail.com. Of course, if you'd like more traditional social networking, you can find us on Facebook. There's links in the show notes and on the website or on Twitter, perhaps where I am most prolific. And my Twitter handle is simply Fredcast. Talked about a lot of topics on the show and asked you for some input. Feel free to do it by email or use the Fredcast listener hotline. Simply call 661-513-FRED. That's 661 661- 513-3733. Tell me your comment. Let me know if it's okay to use it on the show, and hopefully you'll hear your voice on a future episode of the Fredcast.
Well, there's only one thing left to do in today's show, and that is to bring you Podsafe Cycling Music. And this week's Podsafe Cycling Music was chosen specifically for the Fredcast by CadenceRevolution.com, the home of the free weekly featured track and, something I use when I travel, premium members' content of weekly 30- and 60-minute cardio mixes and bi-weekly coaching tracks to get the world moving. Check it out at www.cadencerevolution.com. Tonight's Podsafe Cycling Music is by Joe Peck, and it's called In the City Lights. If you go to the show notes and you click the name of the song, you'll be able to get a free download of the song. And if you click Joe Peck's name, it'll take you to his uh, location on the iTunes music store. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Fredcast. It's a long one. Hope you stuck with it. Hopefully you were able to take it on a long ride. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Fredcast. But between now and then, well, let me start with this. Thank you for listening and thank you for staying subscribed. Thank you for telling your friends about the Fredcast Cycling Podcast and of course about the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. If you didn't listen to our Tour de France wrap-up, Go ahead and listen. We're taking a little bit of heat for some of the things that some of the spokesmen had to say, specifically about Cadell Evans. So go ahead and check that out. So thanks for all of that. Thank you so much for being a fellow Fred. Between this show and the next, enjoy the Podsafe music. But most of all, enjoy the ride. are awful pretty at night frosting up the avenue glittering in every hue so bright neon paintings in the sky billboards paint each passerby rainbow colors cry in every shop but as lovely as they are they won't ever be the part I'm a country boy Strolling the boulevard Every window bar Locked tight Neighbors on a walk Got no time to talk But hey, that's alright Cause we've all Some place to be Among high society Making sure Country boy.
City 